Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 29th, 2015, and this is a special episode of Econ Talk. Econ Talk is part of the Library of Economics and Liberty, which is sponsored by Liberty Fund, which is an educational foundation in Indianapolis, Indiana. If all goes as planned, and if we've counted correctly, this is the 500th episode of Econ Talk, and it's sort of the Indy 500. Uh, I want to thank the board of Liberty Fund, its leadership, the staff for all their support along the way. I want to thank Rich Goyette, my sound engineer, and Lauren Landsberg, who's the editor of the Library of Economics and Liberty, and she's also taking care of has taken care of all the technical parts of Econ Talk, getting it on the web, the highlights that many of you uh, rely on. And she's been a great advisor as well as um, over the nine plus years that I've been doing this. And finally, I want to thank Amy Willis at Liberty Fund, who's working to make Econ Talk's next 500 episodes even better. With the extras that we've added, please head over to econtalk.org and join the conversation there. Just enjoy the follow-up material that we've been adding. Now, one of the greatest things about Liberty Fund is their devotion to quality and excellence All 500 episodes are still available on the web without charge. I know there are some of you out there who have listened to all 500, which uh, blows me away. Uh, A lot of people will email me and say, you know, you should have so-and-so on the program, and often we already have. So go to econtalk.org, and you can find all 500 episodes. To commemorate this modest milestone, I thought I would get a very special guest. Unfortunately, I was unable to reach my first choices. I could not get a hold of either Adam Smith or F.A. Hayek, so I've been forced to settle for Mike Munger. Mike, welcome back to Econ Talk. I here I, I had goosebumps. You talking about the the 500th episode, and then it turns out I'm your third choice. So I'm yeah, hurt. Life life stinks. Um, <laughs> I, I'm disappointed. Actually, you didn't chuckle at the uh, at my Adam Smith joke. And that could have given a little bit of foreshadowing uh, to the listeners, but uh, of who it was. But anyway, this is Mike's 29th appearance on Econ Talk, which makes him the Barry Bonds uh, of Econ Talk guests. But I don't think he's much of a steroid user, so I'm going to call him the Wayne Gretzky of Econ Talk guests. It's especially <laughs> appropriate because Mike is so far ahead of the second place guests and career appearances. So. If you look at Gretzky and points, it's uh, it's a big gap between him and number two, who I think is Gordie Howe. Anyway, our topic for today, well, there isn't one exactly, I, but I thought we'd talk about our intellectual journeys, how we got here, and look back on some of uh, my favorite episodes uh, with you and some of the ideas from those episodes and encourage readers to go back and, and listeners to go back and listen to those and some of the things that are going on in the news that are relevant uh, and related to some of those issues that they came up there. So I want to start with you, Mike, and uh, we've agreed in advance that you occasionally can turn the tables on me and ask me personal questions. So I'm going to start with you, though. Um, I'm curious in your intellectual journey, uh, who your influences were as uh, an economist and thinker, and if that's changed over time when you were, say, coming out of graduate school and assistant professor uh, according to Wikipedia, you're about four years 
younger than I am, so we're pretty close, though, in, in econ years. So I'm curious who your influences were and, and if they've changed. Well, I went to graduate school at Washington University to study macroeconomics with Hyman P. Minsky, the famous post-Keynesian uh, macroeconomist, and that lasted about a week. I, <laughs> I was taking his class, and I thought, this is just really not for me. And I was fortunate enough to have Barry Weingast, Ken Shepsley, and Murray Wiedenbaum, all of whom were the most important influences on me in different ways in graduate school. Um, I worked as Murray Wiedenbaum's research assistant for two years after he came back from being the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors for Reagan. And I guess if I had to pick one person, Murray Wiedenbaum would be the one that I most admire for being able to balance having serious intellectual interests, careful work, and yet is able to talk both to the media and to the public in a way that conveys not just ideas, but passion about the way that policy can work and how it can work better. But I, Barry Weingast and Ken Shepsley turned me more in the direction of public choice, and for that, I owe them a great deal. The bottom line was that I was basically ruined in graduate school, whereas you were a great success. I never got a job in economics. <laughs> well, it's interesting. You, sh you should, for the un uninitiated, you should... Uh define what public choice is and how that led to your um, strange career as a political scientist with, well, a, I, with a degree in economics. Remember, I had only ever, I had gone as an undergraduate to Davidson College. I majored in economics, but it was pretty traditional. And so everything that I knew about academics, the academic field of economics, I learned at Wash U. And there, public choice was kind of the core of what many people worked on. I think most people would define public choice as being the application of economic reasoning to non-market phenomena, particularly politics, and it has three elements. So it has the assumption of uh, individual, we start with individualism, we, we then assume that individuals act purposively, and then we say that people act in groups, but they use non-market institutions to do that. And James Buchanan called that politics as exchange. So those three elements, methodological individualism, uh, the assumption that people behave purposively, and non-market institutions that nonetheless can foster cooperation is what public choice is about. I thought that's what all economists did. It turns out it wasn't true. I ended up getting a job partly through the help of Murray Wiedenbaum at the Federal Trade Commission, which was great. Then I taught as a visitor for a year at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire, but then I went to the University of Texas in Austin, and they had a group of people in the political science department that we would recognize as a lot of the, the leading lights of kind of public choice economics of the 70s and 80s. And that's what saved me, was being able to have basically a second graduate career, working with Gary Cox, Mel Hinnick, and the other people who were at the University of Texas. So I'm just making a, a, a digression on uh, public choice. If you'd asked me, what is public choice? I would have had a simpler, uh, a simpler definition. I would have said, it is, it's, a, it's a way of studying the world by assuming that politicians are just like everybody else. And I, I mentioned that. It, it reminds me of a time I was meeting with a journalist. We're talking about, it was in Washington, D.C., and we're talking about politics, and I mentioned public choice, and 
his reaction was, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like, oh, of course. Well, of course they are. And, and of course they're like everybody else. Of course they have, they're self-interested and, they, you know, they, they look for their own reelection. And, and then he proceeded for the next 45 minutes to forget how he'd started the conversation. Um, and uh, one of the things I've learned from you, one of my favorite things is um, what I think of as unicorn economics. <laughs> and I, I want, I'm, I'm really, I'm dragging away from um, University of Texas here, but in, in the session that we did with, um, with uh, Robert Skidelsky and Richard Epstein, the live version we did, uh, I think it's called Capitalism, Government, and the Good Society, uh, you used the parable of the unicorn. And I wish, I want you to just give that over and then I want to uh, go back, I'll go back to my journalist having coffee. <laughs> Um, if, if you remember it, I, re- I, I, I just looked I, I it up. I remember it well, of course. I'm, I'm afraid because I, I also reprised it in my book, The Thing Itself, because I think it can't be said often enough. And you've just given an illustration of why people will concede that the state is different than they imagine. And yet they still go with the state that they can imagine. And that's what the unicorn parable is about. So I start with the, the idea that... It would be really great if we could use unicorns to pull buses and use them for mass transit. And the nice thing about having unicorns for mass transit is they eat almost nothing except rainbows. They can carry a whole lot of cargo, so they're strong. And the nice thing is the emissions, because their flatulence just smells like fresh strawberries. So if a bus goes by, you'd say, oh, that must be driven by a unicorn. It's quite pleasant. (laughs) Now, the difficulty with this is some people might object, ah, but unicorns don't exist. And of course, that's wrong. All you have to do is close your eyes. And if you close your eyes and I close my eyes and the listener closes her eyes, what we see in our mind's eye is actually probably almost the same thing. Mine is pink. Uh, My unicorn is pink. It has a white horn and it's surrounded by uh, rainbows. So perhaps it's lunchtime. But... (laughs) What, what that means is unicorns actually exist. They just exist in our imagination. The difficulty is many of us think of a state or of politicians in terms of what we can imagine. And so I try to get my students to impose what I immodestly call the Munger test, which is if someone says, well, I think the state should be in charge of that. And that's probably what the reporter that you were talking to did. The state should do this. The state should do that. Stop them and say, all right, let's see. Let's take the word state out of there and put politicians I actually know elected by voters and interest groups that actually exist and see if you still believe it. So uh, large groups of people should be in charge of deciding regulatory policy on uh, entrepreneurs. Well, the state should be able to do that, but I'm not sure that interest group dominated politicians should be able to do that. So the problem is we always imagine unicorns. And if you can get people to recognize when they're using a unicorn, and this, as and we said this when we were talking to Robert Skidelsky, our side does it too. Oh, yes, the, we do. The, the, we have our market, own unicorns. The, we, we definitely have <laughs> our own unicorns. So that all we have to do is leave it up to the market. Well, there's plenty of ways we screw things up. Adam Smith had a very sophisticated understanding of the good side and the bad side of markets. And in some ways, I think we've, we've come away from that in the, our attempt to defend markets as being perfect. So the bottom line of the unicorn story is stop defending markets as being perfect. 
recognize that public choice shows us there's a lot of problems with the state. And that really is a summary of my, in, my intellectual journey is to reach that conclusion. Stop talking about markets so much as being perfect, although I, I enjoy that. As the listeners know, we often <laughs> talk about the way markets work. What's really interesting is to investigate the way that politics and the state screw things up. And so the, my most recent paper in public choice is called The Anatomy of Government Failure. So I, I'm, I'm trying to catalog the ways, the different ways that states, analogous to markets, but in different ways, would require unicorns to work properly. So I was on Twitter yesterday and I got into a long and lengthy uh, back and forth with a bunch of folks about a, a regulatory question that, that this is very relevant for. So there's some issue, I don't remember what it was. It was about whether uh, brokers in financial markets uh, should be regulated and required to do certain things to please their customers. And I don't remember what, I don't remember the exact details. I wasn't so interested in that and I didn't know those details, but the willingness that people had to say, yeah, this would be better because it'll help yeah. people who are ripped off by dishonest brokers. And so, uh, you know, financial people. So one of the people who I was discussing this with was a professor. And I, I wrote back and I said, um, do you think that the government should regulate the quality of education to protect uh, your clients, your customers, your students? And the professor wrote back and said something, well, what would be the issues? Oh, you know, I, I said, well, there's asymmetric information. Um, yeah. There's a real big principal agent problem. So, and there's a uh, monitoring problem. So, you don't want to really spend as much time as you should probably creating papers and giving office hours and preparing your lectures. You'd rather spend more time on leisure or on your research. And I think there should be a government body that whose job it is to correct those those failures. And they're big failures, by the way. We could debate big. where they come from, yeah. uh, whether they're market-based or government regulatory-based or whatever. But college education – uh, professors don't serve their students particularly well, or another way to say it, they could certainly do it a lot better, whether they should or not, whether we want to live in a world where they do or not. Those are different questions. But the idea, forget that. Let's just ask the question, would a mandate of certain requirements, uh, quality preparation, making sure that the syllab syllabuses are well designed, would that improve or hurt the problem? And I don't know the answer to that, of course, uh, but, but it should be apparent to anybody who's thinking about it that there's a cost to that that has nothing to do with whether it's well-designed, perfectly designed, can't be perfectly designed. But there's a cost in just complying and how people then respond to however the law legislation is, is, is actually drafted. They'll respond to that mandate, not the one you might have in mind when you design the came forward and supported such an idea. Yeah, that, that's a much more sophisticated critique, and I think it's worth making. You're certainly right. It really astonishes me how many people don't even take the first step and say, I want to criticize markets as they are with a state that I can imagine. Pointing that out is pretty easy to get them to say, oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, that makes sense. But the thing I want to, want to push on, and, I, and this is um – just something I've learned as as being the uh, the host here and forced to think about education and think about what people remember and and some of the many of the books I've read and the people I've talked to, and that is this idea that 
there are concepts that are apparent and easy to define, but hard to absorb and use. So I learned this actually first from, I had William Byers on. He's a mathematician, I don't know, maybe four years ago. And he talked about the word randomness. He said, it's easy to define randomness, but you could spend a lifetime understanding it. And I think that's true of so many things. And I just, as I get older, I find that, that the deepest things I know are things that I knew 20, 30, 40 years ago, but I know them in a different way. I see them in a richer way and I remember them in a richer way. So when I talked about public choice with that reporter and he was dismissive, oh, of course we all know that. I mean, in fact, he was insulted. His view was, that's my job. My job as a reporter is to be cynical about politicians and you're telling me, and yet somehow it wasn't in his bones the way it was in my bones. He hadn't absorbed that lesson He still had some unicorn thinking. And I think the same is true, as you said, for our side, people who who are in favor of getting government out of certain uh, areas often presume that everything's going to be great when that happens. And I'm happy to concede, and I think we should concede as honest people, that many times it doesn't come out great. It just comes out okay, or maybe sometimes not so great, but better than an alternative, or maybe worse than an alternative. So maybe it's not the right solution. So I just think it's very easy to hand wave away deep ideas that that uh, they don't go in. And, and, you, and it takes a lot of thinking and it takes a certain um, uh, prep to be ready to absorb them. It, it, it is nice, though, to be able to summarize things simply. And it's sometimes deceptive. I mean, the, the definition of public choice that you gave was the one that Alistair Cook actually used to describe the Nobel Prize that was given to James Buchanan. So with his letter from America on the BBC, he said that public choice embodies the homely but important truth that politicians are, after all, no less selfish than the rest of us. Well, that the reporter nods, okay, but understanding the implications of that is very difficult. And I have to say for my own part, and this is kind of embarrassing, I first met James Buchanan in 1983, I think, and I would say that I fundamentally understood James Buchanan's work in about 2008, maybe 2009. It took me forever. I know you did pretty well. (laughs) Was that 25 years? Did you say 83 to 09? That's not so bad. 26 years. Um, Yeah, I think that's that's a perfect example. Oh, yeah, I know know what he says. He says uh, politicians are self-interested like everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thinking about the implications of that is a lifetime project and then some. Um, And I view there are a whole bunch of concepts in economics that are like that. And um, I'm going to go – I'm going to drag you back to University of Texas now. So when when you were younger, your influences, your living influences were people like – that you mentioned, Murray. And I worked I was a colleague of Murray's at WashU. Um you know, I think I think there's a picture of Murray in the dictionary next to the word gentleman. I mean he yeah. was the most civil and um courteous and pleasant intellectual maybe that I've known. He's just was a very a gracious human being, which is unusual. I, 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 rec- I recognize what you're saying. I do fall short of him in many ways, but still, <laughs> <laughs> still, I, I would like to be something. Something like. to strive for. It's just an unusually gracious and modest man, given his uh, resume, is the way I would describe him. Um, so you mentioned some of your living uh, influences. Are there any 
larger uh, than life or uh, past folks who influenced your thinking uh, when you were younger that you want to mention? Well, the the person that most influenced my thinking, probably from reading, nothing but reading, I never met him, and uh, was Milton Friedman. So uh, Milton Friedman's ability, and again, this is something where my appreciation far exceeds my own grasp or ability, but Friedman's willingness to participate in debates and his desire really to try to mix it up and persuade people sometimes by granting their premise in a way that some people on our side would find really upsetting. So the famously Stigler and Friedman wrote a piece on price controls and in it they said something about uh, inequality. Uh, If you want to solve problems of inequality, price controls are a terrible way to do it. And people went nuts because they said, well, how can you say that it's okay to to want to solve those sorts of problems? That's socialism. (laughs) Well, no, the answer is even if you want to do that, I'll grant your premise, price controls are still stupid. Price controls won't even achieve their object within the logic of the approach that you're advocating for. So that for me was the particular genius of Friedman. And I sometimes will go and read stuff that he's written or listen to the two podcasts that you did with him to try to get tips on ways to win debates really with philosophers. And the the tactic of granting a premise and then showing that their conclusion still doesn't follow is enormously effective and very upsetting to an opponent. Because if you deny their premise, well, you know, we just disagree. But no, I'll grant your premise and here's why you're still wrong is terrific. Yeah, what I like to do is go back and watch the old videos of him from the 60s when his or 70s when his uh, interviewers would insult him, uh, be condescending toward him, mock him, be disdainful. And through the whole thing, he smiles, just Unshaken. smiles. So, Unshaken. So confident. I'm not that confident. Uh, and I'm not that happy. It's it's, it's, it's a tremendous <laughs> advantage. He's, he's cheerful. Well, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to speak for you, but I'm not that smart. So that's that's a big part of the reason. So I was going to list my early influences and how they've changed because I think that's interesting. Well, let's go – let's stay with you for a sec. If I asked you today who your influences are, have they changed much or do those uh, teachers that you mentioned, are they still the people who influence the way you think and look at the world? Well, I mean the the particularly Friedman – and uh, Murray Wiedenbaum and Barry Weingast were the ones that uh, I thought, boy, if I could ever come close to doing that kind of work. And of course, I, I haven't. I, I never will. That's okay. Um, but I would say that the, the greatest intellectual influence that I have now is James Buchanan. And it's partly because it took me so long to understand the full implications of the combination of politicians are self-interested, but we still need to try to do things together and we need institutions that are not primarily markets. Prices don't work very well in some of these, but the state doesn't either. And so what institutions can we design? What constitutions can we design? And as you know, because the we did a podcast about my most recent book, that really is what interests me now is the work of James Buchanan. About, and you're talking about choosing in groups. Yes. So one other thing I want to ask you about in terms of your the, the arc of your career Uh, When you and I were, I think this is true, when you and I were at least undergrads, roughly, or in grad school, and I've mentioned this before, there really were only two economists, maybe two and a half, 
or three who were had a voice to, that reached the public. So Milton Friedman and Paul Samuelson alternated columns in Newsweek magazine. And uh, for younger listeners, uh, there used to be two magazines that people paid attention to. It's hard to believe. Well, there, there used to be magazines. Yeah, that too. But <laughs> I think Newsweek's uh, time still exists. Anyway, time in Newsweek it dominated the the news, uh, the print news uh, magazine world, the, the longer frame as opposed to the daily paper. And the third that you could mention was U.S. News and World Report, which is a little stodgier and a little more highbrow, which um, it's kind of amusing also to think about. But Newsweek had the, at the back had a column uh, for an economist. It was either Milton Friedman one week and then it was Paul Samuelson the next. I say two and a half or three. You could throw in John Kenneth Galbraith. John Kenneth Galbraith, there are probably a few others, wrote books that people, you know, for everyday people. Uh, but Friedman and Samuelson were really the only economists with a regular megaphone. Now we live in a world where there are hundreds of economists and non-economists with megaphones. Um, how did you get interested in communicating to the public? And obviously, for those who don't know, Mike actually does things other than guest appear on EconTalk. And even though he's self-deprecating about his resume, he has a fabulous academic resume of of peer-reviewed papers and books and and theoretical articles, empirical articles. So you've had a very, very successful academic career, but including chair of the political science department at Duke. But you also have spent a decent amount of time caring about reaching a wider audience. So talk about how that's evolved uh, over your career. I was interested early on, partly because seeing Murray Wiedenbaum navigate these two worlds so successfully. And so probably the first thing that I ever wrote that was popular is the one that will be have read by more people. I doubt that I've reached as many people combined since. I had a, a Sunday New York Times op-ed on trade policy, on protectionism in 1983 and got hundreds of letters about it. Um, and it was I found that experience intoxicating. I should say, <laughs> though, that I went to graduate school largely because I had read uh, John Kenneth Galbraith's book, The Affluent Society. There you go. And was thought, you know, this is right. We've really messed this up. So Jim Buchanan and I share a background of being coming from very poor families on having kind of a chip on our shoulder by feeling that we weren't getting enough respect from what he would call, he was worse about it than I, you know, those rich boys. <laughs> But also having sort of, he explicitly called himself a libertarian socialist. I was a kind of libertarian socialist in the sense that I thought somebody should help poor people. Now, it turns out that one really good way to help poor people is for them to have jobs. And one way for that to happen is to free up markets. But that's not an obvious thing. So that the, the evolution from reading Galbraith and saying we should care about the way society treats the poor to moving to the view that I would take now that poor people, given the means, will manage to find a way to treat themselves better is the, the I guess that's how I would summarize it. After I left University of Texas, I went to University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, which was your alma mater and also that of my yep. older son. Yep. Go, and go heels. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm still a Carolina fan. <laughs> 
So I, I've never converted to Duke, even though I've been there nearly 20 years. And I was the director, the dean, in effect, of the Master of Public Administration program. And I, we trained city and county managers. And that was fascinating to me because city and county managers are pretty unideological people. They're mostly trying to make sure that fires get put out, the parks get mowed, and that the sewage gets cleaned up. Um, that notion of the importance of public choice in a setting where you're just trying to have good government, I, I think changed the way that I think about a lot of things. And so my, my Norton book, uh, Analyzing Policy with W.W. W. Norton, which came out in 2000, is certainly my most successful book in terms of breadth of use. Um, so the Thank you for saying that I have a lot of academic publications, but I have a pretty confused academic record. Um, when I say that I was interested in getting into debates and that I admired Milton Friedman, um, the most odd thing that I've probably done was that I ran for governor of the state of North Carolina in 2008. I ran as a libertarian, but we did manage to get on the ballot, and I was in four televised debates with the real candidates, the candidates who had been nominated by the state-sponsored parties. And that was, that was really something. So actually being in a debate, I think most of us secretly think that we can dance and that we can cook hmm. and that we could win debates. And yeah. we're probably wrong all three times <laughs> if someone's looking. Yeah, we're but I actually, I, I have televised evidence that I'm not very good at <laughs> debates. It's just that the others are even worse. Well, I don't know. I... We're in the middle of uh, debate season here in the 2000 and we're in 2015 and the run up to the 2016 presidential election. And people uh, play this very cruel game of criticizing and applauding candidates. Of course, it's important to some extent. Uh, but one thing I always think of is how hard it is and how little people appreciate how hard it is. It's so you know, hard. They, they think, oh, you just go up there and talk. What's hard? You have 90 seconds. Yeah, and you can make a fool of yourself so in less than I, I, 90 minutes. I so felt for Rick, for Rick Perry when he couldn't think of the third thing. He should have just gone on, but yep. he froze up. Yeah. And this is a very experienced politician. Oh, that, but that was – and you're talking about the 2012 elections. But that, that was uh, – that's a small kind of mistake. It, it turned out that was a gaffe. It did hurt him. But just how to respond to criticism uh, – when the camera's on you, I think very it's much more challenging than. Uh, well, the the key I, I now know the key is to talk and smile without answering the question. Yes, so that's my huge. Mistake was I didn't smile and I answered the question. Those are both difficult things to do, though the smiling and the not answering. It yes, doesn't so come it naturally. Takes a, it takes a skill. Well, but this the, the Russ. I'm sure that I speak for the listeners when I I say they're thinking enough about Munger. Let's hear about Russ. <laughs> No, one more thing before. Oh, you know, I'm getting actually the lines are lighting up right now. You're right, but we don't have any lines. Um, <laughs> seriously, uh, one thing I want to mention in talking about your outreach to the public, um, the governor thing is very interesting. And I, when you look back on that, I want to say one other thing. I'm going to ask you a question about governor, and then I ask you one other thing. Then we can talk about me a little bit. Um, was that how fun was it? Was it scary? Was it fun? Are you glad you did it? Do you have mixed feelings? Was it a mistake? What, what, what are your thoughts now, seven years later? 
Many people ask why I did it. The simple answer is North Carolina has really restrictive ballot access laws and the, the parts of the law are designed to ensure that you arrive breathless at the starting line and have no chance of actually running. So it takes $300,000 to get on the ballot and then you have to get 2% of the race once you're on, of the election once you're on. The problem with that is once you've spent $300,000 raising signatures, you have no money left over to use for ads. And so eight times the Libertarian Party in North Carolina had gotten on the ballot but then failed to get 2%. I, because I'm an arrogant man, thought I could get 2%. But in a way, that's a pretty modest goal. And if you set your goals low enough, you could be a success, Russ. I mean, your, your goals have been pretty high and you've met them. <laughs> I had the 2% goal. And if you define 2% as victory, I won that race. 128,000 misguided souls voted for me. And so cool. It was, I mean, the, when you say 2.8%, okay, that's some. But 128,000 people voted for me. And that part of it was very satisfying because I got the Libertarian Party on the ballot in one of the states where the Democrats and Republicans had conspired through an obvious conflict of interest to prevent basic democracy from working. So that may be the thing that I'm proudest of, of the, you know, the individual separate things that, that I have done, was overcome that obstacle. Now the Libertarians are on the ballot. We did it again in 2012 so we can run a full slate of candidates. It's not that we're really going to be able to win many of these races, but we can participate in the process and offer an alternative that embarrasses both the Republicans and the Democrats about the key parts of their platform that they've just forgotten, that they've conveniently forgotten. So if someone like me is at the debate, I can raise questions and say, you know, you, you say this, that isn't really how it works. So the, the, I, I say the debate was difficult and that, you know, I answered the questions. The fact is, in a way, I'm their worst nightmare because I'm superficially glib. I have a PhD in economics and I have no hope of winning. So I could, <laughs> I could say what I actually thought. Their job was to bicker. So I, it was fun, that part of it, the, the final debates and then getting the 2% that I wanted really was very satisfying. The previous year was terrible because I and one other person would drive for four hours to Western North Carolina and talk to a gathering of five people. Yeah, that's tough. Education one person at a time. Well, or five and, and or in your case, thousands yeah, because thousands. you, in your intellectual development, had the idea of saying, "I'm going to do something on the radio." Yeah, we're, we're going to come back to me in a sec. I got two more things. To, well, one of them's about me, but it relates to you. So, I, I, you've, I've probably told you this story, and I may have even told it on on the program before. But I'll, I'll repeat it because it's so relevant. In 1976, um, I was, so this is probably 75, actually. No, it was 76. It's winter of 76. I went down to North Carolina uh, with Roger McBride's uh, Libertarian presidential campaign, which is a very modest campaign, but did have a plane. Uh, it was a DC-3, which most listeners will have never been on. I've been on a couple. Um that's a plane, by the way, that when it sits on the runway, the uh, it's at, at about a 45-degree angle. It's got a three wheels, basically. It's a classic little plane, uh, and it was used for commercial airlines for a long time. Uh, but anyway, we, this was not commercial. It was a private plane, and its uh, call number on its tail was N1776 or 1776N. I can't remember, but it was a very auspiciously-eared uh, 
a number related to a auspicious year. And we flew to North Carolina for a day to try to get McBride on the ballot. So I stood in front of a grocery store in Raleigh and uh, accosted strangers saying, would you like to help a uh, a party get on the ballot that supports the ideals of Thomas Jefferson? That was that was my uh, marketing line. But so that you you've actually done that. You've yeah. been a solicitor for signature. Yeah, and they uh, it was remarkably difficult. They had no interest. And yeah. at one point, my favorite my favorite encounter of the afternoon was somebody who said, "No, not interested." I said, "Why not?" I was sort of desperate and depressed and yeah. down. And he said, we have too many parties already. I said, <laughs> I said, two? <laughs> two is too many? Well, he may have had a point. There's, <laughs> there's plenty of anarchists that think that way. Yeah, it's true. Um, <laughs> I mean, the did last not th- know that, Russ. That's terrific. Yeah, no, it was, a, it was a great experience. But before we get to me, I want to just uh, mention that of, of you've written many, many uh, fantastic essays, and people who have not read them should read them. Uh, your book, The Thing in Itself, is great written for a non-technical audience. Uh, there are parts of choosing in groups that are that are great that you can read if you're not a technical economist. But my favorite piece here is I just want to get this in because that's so important, is the piece you wrote called Everybody Likes Mikey. And if you haven't, we'll put a link up to it. It's a, it's a, it was at the Library of Economics and Liberty. If you haven't read that piece, you've missed out because it really is a extraordinarily well done piece on how markets work. And I, I, um, I have to agree with you, Russ. It, it, it <laughs> is probably the best single thing that I've written, partly because it's short, but it, it also, it, 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 it's laugh out loud funny, but it's mostly true. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and even though that sounds immodest, it's modest because <laughs> uh, you'll have to read it to figure out the joke there. Um, I'll talk about me for a sec. I, what's interesting for me, uh, you know, I've had a very erratic uh, career for an academic. Uh, I started off as a, quote, normal academic. My first job was at the University of Rochester. And coming out of graduate school, if you said, who are your influences? I would have said Gary Becker, Milton Friedman, Coase, McCloskey, and Nozick. Um, those were the people who I respected, who had shaped my thinking either as a academic economist to be, or as a, a philosopher, as somebody who was interested in ideology and interested in public policy um, in particular. And I would say of those influences, although Milton still is with me in certain ways, uh, Deirdre McCloskey, who taught me price theory in uh, 1976, the fall of 1976, had a huge impact on the way I think about economics as a set of tools rather th- for looking at the world rather than a set of, say, equations. Um, but when I think now, because my career has headed in so many other directions, and I, you know, I was getting ready for this interview, I was thinking about what was sort of the the turning point in my career. The turning point in my career for me was to change the, my path was uh, I was watching a documentary on Frontline on PBS, uh, um, a Frontline documentary on PBS about how Japan exploits America and gives us all the lousy jobs and is stealing all our jobs. And it was an utterly despicable and I thought awful uh, bit of public policy analysis. And I think history's not treated it very well, their, 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 uh, their vision. But at the time, I was stunned by the fact that at the end of that documentary, and this was in the early 1990s, 
the end of that documentary, uh, it showed a set of troops returning home from Iraq. And they said, they said, we won that war. Why can't we win the trade war? And wow. I got goosebumps, even though I thought it was an awful argument, because I don't think trade's a war. I think trade's about mutually beneficial exchange. And I was so stunned that I was emotionally affected by an argument that, th- that I thought was wrong. Yeah. Uh, and I thought, I'm going to do something like that. I'm going to do it. I'm going to make a documentary that makes the case for, for trade as a non-zero-sum game, as a mutually enhancing uh, human experience. And so I wrote Milton Friedman, who I'd had in, in, a non, in a non-credit class when I was at Chicago, right before he left Chicago. And he told me to get in touch with Bob Chittister, who he had made the Free to Choose documentary with. And I got in touch with Bob and I met with him and thought about making a documentary on trade. And then I realized I'm not good at making documentaries. I don't know anything about it. I'm going to write a book. So I wrote a book called The Choice, which was my attempt to explain the economics of trade for people who didn't know any economics. And that really has got me started on and passionate about the idea of reaching non-economists and helping them understand things. And um, Econ Talk's the natural uh, transition. What's interesting for me is that along the way, I ended up getting a job at George Mason, uh, which I didn't expect to. I was doing a bunch of experiential learning things at Washington University and St. Louis's Business School, the Olin School of Business. And I thought I'd left academic economics behind, but George Mason... Uh, to my gratitude, uh, hired me, and I fell under the influence of their department. And I would say their influence and people like them have shaped who I am now in such a dramatic way and in many ways more dramatically than graduate school. So, you know, people like Don Boudreaux, who I spent hours talking with, uh, Arnold Kling, who's not at George Mason, but who I think has a very novel way of thinking about things, been a guest on Econ Talk many times, uh, you, uh, I realized I've spent 28 hours <laughs> uh, at least. Uh, and of course, we spent time talking outside of Econ Talk. Um, Dan Klein, who got me interested in Adam Smith, uh, and um, all of them, including and Pete Betke, got me interested in uh, Hayek. And I had, as I've mentioned before on the program, I, you know, I read the Use Knowledge in Society in graduate school. Nobody reads it anymore, but at the time, that was sort of still considered required reading. And uh, I liked it. Nice article. And that was my James Buchanan. We've talked about this before. I talked about it with Vernon Smith, that you can read that article uh, three times and still have plenty to learn from it. And so I'm surprised at how much of my modern, current, not modern, current way of looking at the world comes from people I've either interviewed at Econ Talk, Econ Talk or hung out with in, at George Mason. I think it, it, one thing that many of us would like to know, and I speak now as a fanboy, is how did you have the idea specifically? You said it led naturally to Econ Talk. I, I, in one case, you wrote a book. It was very successful. It was very successful. That book has sold more than everything I've ever written combined, the, the one book, The Choice. So why would you think, all right, now that I've written a book, I should basically do a radio show using a technology that no one understands? And l- let me say for the listeners, if you look at the first few EconTalk recordings, the name of the file is the name of the person. And the first one was uh, Cox. It's Cox underscore radio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
So it, it makes sense. You think of this as being a radio. The, the idea of podcasting had just started in 2004. The first ones that you did, you were feeling your way. This was a new medium, and you were one of the pioneers of it. Yeah, I was. Um, it was really incredibly fun. I got interested in it because somebody invited me to be on their program. And I thought, okay, sure, why not? I said, well, how many people listen to it? And they said, he said, well, about 3,000. And I thought, 3,000? Wow. <laughs> I mean, there's like a huge auditorium of people who are going to come hear me talk? That sounds fun. That sounds like a good thing. Um, so I thought, I'm going to try this. I'll do one. I'm going to try it. I'll do one. And I didn't know how hard it would be. Um, in fact, there were t the, the two things we worried about in the early days are kind of funny now that, that we've been doing it for nine years. The first was we would run out of guests. <laughs> so, some, somebody at Liberty Fund said, well, you're going to run out of people to talk to him. And how many interesting yeah. economists are there? Yeah, well, that, actually, that's a fair point. It is a fair point because we solved it in, a, in an unusual way. We, we interview a lot of non-economists, of course, yes. and we interview some economists more than once. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, but it, it is interesting. And I, I think it's, I think in the aftermath of the financial crisis, the interest in economics has grown so dramatically uh, that there are many, many more people writing books for the public who are suitable for interviews. There are people interested in spreading their ideas and willing to appear on the program who otherwise wouldn't. So anyway, so I started the program and I thought, well, I'll do this every once in a while. And I, I learned pretty quickly and I think it took about – it's in the first maybe six months of the program. I realized I had to come out every week if I were going to get an audience. And um, that – in the early days, we did 50 episodes a year. We took a week or two off at, uh, at holiday season and then we decided – I just decided I'm going to put one out every Monday no matter what. And I guess – I don't know how long I've been doing that for, maybe five, six or seven years of, of since then. But um, – and, you know, when we started, we had a few thousand. People ask me how many listeners we have. You know, we get about 40,000 downloads in the first week of an episode right now. Uh, you say I've reached my goals, and I've mentioned before, I think I'd like to be at 100 or 200,000 for that first week, but we're at about 40, which is not bad. So we've gone from a large auditorium to a small football stadium. I'd like to get to a large football stadium. I'd like to have 100,000 people uh, listening I'd like to be uh, sitting at the 50-yard line in, in my comfortable armchair with you while there's 100,000 people listening. But 40 is really nice. And those of you listening out there, I so appreciate it. And I so appreciate hearing from you. And it's, um, it's by far the most rewarding thing uh, I've ever done as an economist in terms of educational impact. It's, um, you know, it's, it's a, my book's, you say my books outsold all yours combined. Unfortunately, that my first books outsold all my other books combined too. <laughs> that's not unfortunate. That, that, that's still a good thing. But kind okay. of, yeah, kind of, yeah. Um, but in terms of one of the reasons I left George Mason and am now full time at the Hoover Institution at Stanford is to have more time to expand Econ Talks' reach and to expand what it could accomplish. And I think we've got a long way to go still on. I, you know, I think it's wonderful that people are listening while they walk their dog or uh, brush their teeth or do the dishes or commute, and that's great. But a, a lot, number of you out there want to really understand the ideas really deeply and not just be multitasking and doing it, listening at work and 
you want to listen to it two or three times. You want to, I think some of you would like to have some ways to check your knowledge. And I'd like to push Econ Talk in that direction as we go forward. Well, I, I have some little questions that I'm sure people have wondered. I, I have debated this and I'm hoping that you can solve it for us. The music, how did you choose the music? <laughs> Uh, that music was, and by the way, there's, I, you know, I've asked whether we should change the music. Uh, a lot of people would like to change the music, but those people have a solution. And I've met people who they tell me they just, when they start Econ Talk, they skip 27 seconds or whatever it is ahead. So they just skip the music. It doesn't matter. Um, so other people say, how can you change the music? Yeah, yeah that it's would be, the music. That's 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 an out would be an outrage. If, if um, you were to change the music for Green Acres, it wouldn't be Green Acres exactly. anymore. Exactly, or Gilligan's Island. I mean, come on. <laughs> so <laughs> we're dating ourselves, yeah, uh, badly too, and, and choosing really awful uh, examples. But yeah, it was an infelicitous example. Yes, it was very infelicitous. Word you don't get to use that often. <laughs> um, that music it, it came from a video that I saw that I loved. There was this beautiful video done that showed the pattern of takeoffs and landings uh, in, I think, the United States over the course of a day, the takeoff and landing of airplanes. And each, it showed a map of the United States, and each takeoff and landing was a white line, and it unfolded in real time. So what you saw is that the flights started in, of course, um, the East Coast and the takeoffs in the morning and then the takeoffs got more common as they moved to the West and each flight being a line of, of white light, uh, the lines got very bright around uh, cities where there was more traffic. And I viewed this as a beautiful example of emergent order Yeah, that the, it's not just that, well, there's more flights when you know, in cities, it's that the market, to the extent it's a market, it's obviously highly regulated, but it responds to people's desires to f travel more frequently between certain places. And you could see that with your eyes. And it was kind of cool. And there was a soundtrack. The soundtrack for that video, if I'm remembering this correctly, was called Cleared Up Sunset. And the, um, the creator of it was Yasuhiro Sushia. And somehow I got a hold of him. Uh, and asked for his permission. He said, yes. Now, my first choice actually for me, we didn't have music, I don't think, at the beginning. I'd have to check that. But my first choice was actually the acoustic guitar opening of If I Had a Million Dollars by Bare Naked Ladies, which um, my kids all know I'm a sucker for good acoustic guitar, uh, particularly folky uh, finger picking, but just even good strumming, which is what is the the opening of If I Had a Million Dollars. Uh, I just, it's a, I love that opening and I love what that song is about as an example of economics, which is basically, even when you have more money, you still have things to spend it on. That's, you just, you just get, um, you get gourmet ketchup, Dijon ketchup, <laughs> you don't just, you still have ketchup, yeah. you get Dijon ketchup, I think is yeah. the line in the song. Um, so the, the insatiability of human desires is captured really beautifully in that song in a charming way. So I thought... That's kind of, there aren't that many songs like that. After that, you'd have to go with um, uh, You Can't Always Get What You Want uh, by the, um, the Rolling Stones. But uh, I thought there was a beautiful sound there, but I couldn't get 
bare naked ladies' attention. Yeah, uh, sure. I tried. I tried for a well, long time. You, you could have gotten their attention by using the song without their permission. Mm, yeah, <laughs> in my dreams. Yeah, that, that, I, would, that wouldn't have been the right kind of permission. Yeah, though. that would have been a cease and desist order. So yeah, you did the right thing. I don't think Liberty Fund would have let me do that. I think I, I, I might have thought of that, but it, I didn't do it. Uh, but I couldn't get. The, I finally got their attention. I got their legal team's attention, and they were. You know, it's one of these things where, yeah, for a hundred thousand dollars, you can yeah. use it for six months. And I said, look, this is a educational podcast. Yeah. I'm not Warner Brothers. Give me a break. But they didn't. So um, thank you to uh, Yasuhira Sashia for the um, sound the soundtrack of Econ Talk for whatever it's worth. It, it, I actually don't recognize it because I always listen on – I have a, a little MP3 player and I listen on double speed. And I, I, I wonder how many listeners do that. So I, I listen to everything on double speed. I have to admit, Russ, your voice sounds weird to me because <laughs> I'm so used hearing your voice much higher and faster listening double speed. If you practice, you can actually get everything and then it only lasts for half an hour or 35 minutes. And you can listen to two if you go for a long <laughs> walk. But I, I don't recognize the music now because I, I'm used to hearing it so fast. That's funny. Well, the... At first, you didn't get many comments, so I I went back and looked at the first one. You, you didn't really have transcripts. Um, it wasn't clear how comments were going to work. You, the first one that actually was commented any in any useful way was in July of two thousand six, and that was Robert Barrow, and that one had twenty eight comments. So was was that a revelation? You may not remember, but that it, it's it's interesting that there were enough comments there that there was a conversation. They weren't asking you questions; they were talking to each other. Did did you then try to cultivate that? Because that's a sort of web 2.0 thing where there's another conversation that's going on that you're fostering, but you're not really influencing. It's just you're providing a forum for the commenters. Yeah, I, I don't remember that. And I, I don't think we've done a very good job with creating that forum. I'm trying to find some new ways to allow those of you out there to interact with each other. Uh, that's why we've done some live events. I think it's nice to meet um, face-to-face, and I want to find more ways to do that. Uh, it's funny you mentioned, though, that that's, I don't remember that episode, 2006, looking here at the archives. I want to mention, I, I don't know if I mentioned in the beginning, but all 500 episodes are available. I did mention that. They're available, so do check them out. Um, they're somewhat embarrassing because I think the early ones, I talk way too much. I still talk too much probably, but uh, I talk less than I used to. People would complain about it. And I took that complaining to heart, and I do try to talk less. But they're all up there, so all of my flaws are uh, are on display. I, I will say that – I see I've got Barrow and Growth here. What yeah. happened was um, people were very kind to me. Uh, the first step, the first econ talk is Don Cox, an old very good friend. My second, some guy, Mike Munger. Yeah, on uh, scalp. Yeah, I don't know what he was thinking. <laughs> then we had Skip Sauer, Alex Tabarrok, Richard Epstein, Mike Bunger again. I did a solo one, which I tried, which is an awful one. Um, and then uh, then my, my first Nobel Prize winner was Gary Becker. Gary was my advisor, and he agreed to to be a guest, which was incredibly kind of him. And then, of course, Milton agreed later that summer. Yeah. And when I can tell people that so-and-so has been a guest, Milton Friedman's been a guest – uh, they thought, well, that's a club I don't mind being in. Not that they yeah. wouldn't mind being in your club, Mike, but Milton, I think, helped <laughs> me a little bit more in the early days. Um, and I think that that was a, a, a big deal. Um, well, it, it's – you you say sometimes you talked too much. I'm not sure that's true. It was 
you got so much better at asking questions that now it just seems seamless. Whereas before, sometimes you could tell you were trying to think just what question to ask. So the, the quality of your commentary now is, is really terrific. Often you, you still do have quite a bit to say. I wondered how often it had happened, and you may not remember this, but I, I don't know which one it was, but you and I were doing one one day, and we got so mad at each other that we just quit and then started again the next day. Is, does that happen very often? Oh, all the time. No, it doesn't. We weren't, we weren't it doesn't. cursing at each other, but it was it was clear that it was just tense. And so, all right, we'll do this later. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember Bye. that mercifully. Um, uh, I, there are some. It's when we get to number a thousand. We do. Well, God willing, there'll be a, at least a thousand episodes of Econ Talk. When we get to a thousand, I'll tell some of the stories, maybe of. Uh, the backstory of what actually happened when I recorded certain episodes in person, uh, which has happened that are amusing, embarrassing, frightening. Uh, they're, they're bound to be outtakes. And of course, the nature <laughs> of outtakes is they're taken out. Yeah, but very few, actually. Um, most of what you, you know, people ask me, are they edited? They're not edited other than I lose my train of thought every once in a while. The guest almost never does. Um but every once in a while, I'm trying to look ahead and see how much time's left on the clock and try to think about whether to ask a clarifying question. And I just lose, I go blank and I tell yeah. the guest, I'm going to, you know, we'll edit this out. But most of it is you know, what you hear. Um, we did have, you and I had a disastrous one where I made some empirical claim. We're not going to go into it in detail, but I made some empirical claim that turned out to be false. Well, the only drawback was false. It was yeah. very clever. It, it was. It just happened to be false. Yeah. And, and I said, Listeners out there, I said to Mike, I said, Mike, this is a little bit awkward. I know it's kind of gauche, but I think my whole premise yesterday when we yeah. taped that was, <laughs> other than the fact that it was wrong, it was fantastic, but it was wrong. Yeah, uh, well, and, it was a very interesting talk. And But could we just read, could we talk about something else? <laughs> and you, you were kindly agreed to, uh, uh, to, to redo it, but... I don't remember the fighting one. Um, Wait, but- it wasn't a fight. It was just tense. <laughs> it was a little icky. <laughs> Uh, is there anything else you want to ask about? Well, um, what would I mean, you 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 said forty thousand? You'd like to have a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand. Have you thought of doing more live? Because the way that a lot of these are live to tape, and some of them are live in person, but that's the sort of tradition with podcasts. The other way to do things is to webcast them and to allow questions at, at the beginning. And it may have been, and that was I really was interesting to me to see that the, the titles of these were like Cox Radio, Munger Radio, because the, the wave that clearly you guys thought about it was this is kind of a radio broadcast. It just happens to be recorded. The, actually, the advantage of podcasts is they're available for people to download and listen to two or three times or whenever they want. Have you have you thought about trying to webcast? The advantage of which would be allowing people to ask questions in real time. Yeah, I I have a little bit. I mean, I've thought of also just other ways we might have real live questions. I think that's a good idea, but I don't. The technological aspects of all that just don't thrill me. No, I think it's a, it's a different thing, and this works. Um, you know, people claim people say sometimes, "Can't you get better audio quality?" I think we have really good audio quality. And by the way, in this episode, we're doing this on Skype, and we're getting a little bit of reverb and warbly sound with you, Mike. And unless you've got some kind of um, uh, uh, physical issue, I, I'm unaware of. I think you're okay, right? You are okay. I, I'm, I'm sorry you had to find out this way, <laughs> but I, but if you hear that, that's just a bad artifact that comes from from using Skype and. Um, we, we do these, you know, there's no studio. We're using, 
Um, and when you listen to an NPR podcast, they force you 99%, not always, but most of the time they force you into their studios because they care a lot about the audio quality. I do too. And we're doing the best we can. I think we're going to go to Skype in the future more often. I think we're going to have better quality. But I think that's um, I think that's a key and a really important thing. Uh, I just want to say one thing about the audience size. When I say I, I want to get to 100,000, I'd like to get to a million. Uh, but but the reason I pick 100,000 is that I know there are at least 100,000 people who listen to economics podcasts of whom many of them just don't know about us. And yeah. if they knew about us, they would. I, I mentioned there were two things that we worried about at the beginning. One was not enough guests. The other thing we worried about was that people wouldn't want to listen for an hour. Yeah. And there are people who don't want to listen for an hour, obviously. Um, you know, some people said to me, you know, radio's really short. People, three minutes is a long time on radio. And it is. That's true. Ten minutes is an eternity on a radio program. But what I wanted to do and what you're, if you're listening, what you want to hear is something a little more in-depth. Well, maybe not this week. But <laughs> but, sorry. <laughs> Cheap shot of both of us. But yeah. you want a more in-depth discussion. And I found, you know, I often found an hour limiting. So yeah. I think it's... I've seen that in comments. I, I've seen commenters say, I wish you'd had more time to talk. Correct. And it was an hour and five minutes. Yeah. And, and we did an early one with Bruce Boyne and a mosquito that went, an, went 80 minutes, went an hour and 20 minutes. And people complained because they couldn't write it onto a, onto a CD. Yeah. Uh, they had an 80 minute CD and it, it was too long for that. So uh, I sort of made a mental note that a little over an hour is okay. 80 minutes is too long. But, you know, the, the sweet spot we've been shooting for is, is about an hour. And... Um, Really, I'm really happy with that choice. I love the opportunity to talk to interesting people every week, smarter than I am, and ask um, questions and, and learn new stuff. It's been a really extraordinary intellectual experience for me. Well, and I, I, I've said, and you scoffed at this, but it's true, the quality in the last two years, the quality of these has been so great that I'm intimidated. I, <laughs> I, I really think I, I need something better to say. Cause oh, yeah, you better, you better study up, Mike. Yeah, this, better, better do some research. This, this has really <laughs> been great. I look forward to Mondays, and I know that a lot of people look forward to Mondays because that's the day that a new uh, Econ Talk podcast comes out. When did you start saying I'll talk? We'll, we'll talk on Monday. I don't know. I the because um, I love that. That's great. And 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 Lauren Landsberg, who I mentioned as the technical side, uh, she, you know, she puts it up every Monday morning, six thirty Eastern time. So my joke is. You want to live on the West Coast because you get it earlier. You get it at three thirty. It's a fantastic yeah. deal. Or Hawaii. Uh, so, if there are any Hawaii <laughs> listeners out there, I'd love to know if you're if you're listening at at twelve thirty or one thirty, whatever time in Hawaii they come out. But uh, um, it's six thirty a.m. on the East Coast in America. Um, I don't know if it's gotten better. It's um, I've gotten many people are not happy, and some are very happy that the show is. The guest list is a little different, I'd say, today than it was four or five years ago. Four or five years ago, we did a lot of shows on the financial crisis, on monetary policy, and I'm just less interested in those things. I'll still do some. There's still some books being written I wouldn't mind talking to the authors about that relate to the financial crisis or monetary policy. Um, and we'll, we'll continue to talk about those, but they do not dominate the guest list the way they did in the past. And some people are disappointed about that. Um but, you know, I just, I can't keep, it's not interesting enough to me. I won't do a good job. So we're going to, we've widened it a little bit since then. Well, part of what's nice about Econ Talk that I really admire is the way that you sort of take us along on reading a book or talking to someone that 
you're learning something from, and you're pretty honest. I didn't know much about this. I really learned. Here's the thing that I thought was most interesting. And so we get to free ride on that kind of journey of discovery. And I, that to me is the thing that maybe six years ago wasn't as present. And now it's there almost every week. So way to go. Yeah, that's kind of you. I hope that's true. Um, I want to, do you have anything else you want to ask about Econ Talk? Before I, I, wanna... I, I, I don't. Good. Uh, I want to. I want to just close. We're over an hour, but I want to close with um, just some classic episodes that you and I have done. Things that are that I've noticed in the news this in the last month. Uh, we've done a lot of episodes on price gouging and price controls, and the story that's been much talked about is the generic drug company that's selling drug uh, doses for seven hundred and fifty dollars. Um, and the venture capitalist who's behind that got a lot of criticism, and um, I couldn't help but think about our past episodes, but in particular, the fact that why wasn't there competition for a generic drug? And now it turns out I think somebody is going to produce it for, I think, a dollar a dose, a slightly lower price. Uh, what's not clear to me, and I don't know if you're up on this, but uh, the FDA evidently makes it a little challenging for generics to just enter and compete. But this pre-existing company is is going to do this through some... I don't know. I don't understand that exactly. Have you been following the story? Well, they they bought the license to produce it, and it is generic in the sense someone else could. There's the market for it isn't that big, but the people who buy it really, really need it. And so the economies of scale are such that nobody else might enter. Uh, the interesting question is. Would we expect people just not to act this way? Because it seems pretty egregious. The the guy who was the 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 CEO of this who is the CEO of this company just flaunted the fact that you know you, nobody can tell me different. I'm going to charge the highest price that I can get. It meant that a lot of people had trouble affording any, but he got a whole lot more as a result. The the difficulty does seem to me the restrictions that the FDA puts on what should be a generic drug. The difficulty was that the market just wasn't very big. So this guy scored by making a correct guess. I actually found it pretty troubling because, and this is something that you observed that I now point out to my students and actually used in one of the uh, uh, Learn Liberty videos. The solution to a lot of these problems is manners. <laughs> it's just wrong. It's wrong to act that way. And yeah, it's the Smithian, it's the Smithian response. Yeah, but, I, but the, I, I recognize Smith said it, but you sort of brought it home to me once, and now I see that happening all the time. Just don't act that way. And that but, person, if you really don't care, if you're a sociopath and you don't care about the views of other people, then we have other problems. Yeah, well, I assume he didn't get invited to a lot of good cocktail parties, but he can uh, buy friends. Yeah. <laughs> um, of course, the other point is that. A lot of people paying the $750 a dose aren't paying with their own money. They're paying with third-party insurance money or government money. So it's a whole aspect of our medical system that yeah. we've talked about recently uh, as well. And um, Now, about a year and a bit ago, we did a conversation on the sharing economy, which is one of my favorite episodes ever and especially um, one of my favorites with you because it really helped me crystallize my thinking on the role of Uber and B. Airbnb and others, and how they compete with uh, existing players, uh, that market remains troubled. Um, those companies remain somewhat besieged by the regulatory world. There's been some progress in allowing them to 
have access to customers and there's been some steps backward. It, that talk that you and I had was the reason that I'm now working on a book called Tomorrow 3.0 because I learned so much in preparing for it. And I think the way to think about this, and I, a lot of people know this, but maybe not everybody does. Um, in northern France and Belgium, there were people who used hand looms to make cloth, and they wore wooden shoes called sabot, S-A-B-O-T. Well, when power looms came in, they would throw those wooden shoes and break the gears in the power looms. And that was sabotage. They were saboteurs. That is the coolest and thing. The, <laughs> no, I mean, it's not the coolest thing. But it's the coolest well, but thing it is for you to explain that. that. <laughs> it, the economic interest led them to sabotage what we as economists would say, well, oh, everyone's better off. That is so not true. It is not true that these innovations make everyone better off. It, there's a lot of benefits, but there's a lot of harms. And so we're going to continue to see sabotage of exactly this kind. People are going to turn lift cars over. They're going to make it more difficult to have Airbnb. The economic logic of it is irresistible in a way, but it can be delayed a long time because of the concentrated economic interests that depend on rents that are create, created by the current system. So this is a fascinating subject that will play out over the next 10 years. And it, it's interesting to see history repeat itself. The difference here is it's not a new production process. It's a new way of selling reductions in transactions cost on software platforms, as Gavin Andreessen has talked about in the times you've had him on. Mark. On Ma actually, talk. Mark. Mark. And, Mark, yeah. Mark. So there, there, there are two Andreessens, and it's yeah. P. Marka that I met. <laughs> yeah. So Mark Andreessen with two E's. Uh, it, he is the one who says software eats the world. Well, yeah, but people throw their wooden shoes into the gears, too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the last thing I wanted to uh, mention is that we're recording this uh, in the middle of the World Series. Uh, neither of us has a horse in this race. Um, your beloved Cardinals and my beloved Red Sox are, um, didn't make it. Uh, but in the run-up to the World Series, something happened that made me think of you, Mike, which was uh, Chase Utley was on first base. Uh, it was a ground ball. He ran out of the base path and bowled over uh, the Met shortstop, Ruben Tejada, and broke yeah, his leg. Broke, broke his him. leg. Injured him. Yeah, badly. Um, and there was an enormous firestorm of criticism of him and a view that he had, had done a horrible thing. And I'm just struck by how, obviously, the reason there was that criticism was because he'd broken his leg. If he'd just broken up the double play, yeah. it would have been a no nothing and plays like that happen every week in baseball. Yeah. And there's an unwritten rule that you're allowed to slide out of the base path and try to break up a double play. And he was keeping that unwritten rule in the keeping of it. He broke the guy's leg. So there was a firestorm, but there's a big outcry that they need to change the rule. They need to, you know, stay in the, in the um, base path. And of course at home plate, they've changed the rule. Uh, so that to try to reduce the number of, uh, injuries that happen at home plate when people try to score. And so you did a an episode on, uh, I think it was on a book called The Code, about fighting in the NHL and various norms. And we broaden that to a discussion of norms in sports generally and norms generally, you know, beyond sports. It's a fascinating thing how norms can change as we get richer, as sometimes a result happens as a result of that norm we just don't like. And it'll be interesting to see how baseball 
uh, deals with this. There was a big debate after that whether uh, you know the uh, Mets were going to hit somebody in the head on the Dodgers team as a punishment, and that they had to because that was an unwritten another unwritten rule. And and this generated a big discussion of unwritten rules. So if you're interested in <laughs> unwritten rules, I uh, want you should go back and listen to that. Mike just mentioned rent seeking in terms of the sharing economy. He's got a fabulous episode on rent seeking. Uh, and if you want to know about Chilean buses, uh, we got that too for you. So uh, the Munger Irv, uh, or to give it the, the more, the uh, highbrow pronunciation, oeuvre, yeah. the, the Munger Oeuvre of uh, episodes is rich. This is number 29, and I encourage uh, listeners to listen to all 29 well, and I I want to thank you for all of those, but perhaps, as, as I said, I, I had goosebumps even thinking about there being a, a 500th episode. This thing that you have done, that you have created out of nothing, that's now a social institution for so many of us, gives us value basically just for the cost of downloading a file every week. The fact that it's available for free and yet produces so much value is really a credit to your vision and what you've accomplished as a teacher and as a entertainer. Well, I want to thank Liberty Fund and uh, the vision of, of uh, Pierre Goodrich, the founder, uh, to allow it to be possible. That All you have to do is download that file because... Um, it's uh, it is it's a their commitment to economic education, uh, the books they publish, the conferences they run, uh, all I think help increase our understanding. My guest today has been Mike Munger. Mike, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.